Hi folks, welcome to Fig Tree Ministries. Make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel by clicking that red subscribe button below and click that bell to make sure you get notified every time we upload a new video. Enjoy today's lesson. So as we've already alluded to, we're going to be talking about Zacchaeus and two weeks, at least two weeks, because as you'll see today, when we start unpacking all of this, there's a lot of information in here, and it helps. Well, there's some things that I want you to read over the next week, and it'll help you digest some of it and really think about what Luke is trying to do, or at least God's Word through Luke, how it's going to cause us to think about what we're reading and, and how we end up with this story. So if you want to turn in your Bible to Luke 19, 1 through 10, and I think we're pretty much there the whole time. Yeah, so Luke 19, 1 to 10, we'll read it in a minute. Let me give you a, a brief, a long, well, I would say brief. It might be a longer than brief introduction here. So we look at a story like this, and we all know the song. Particularly, if you grew up in church, you probably sang the song about Zacchaeus and the wee little man, and we've heard the Zacchaeus story so many times. And as is often the case, you know, if, you get, if we get our theology from songs, Christmas songs, sometimes worship songs, if we get our theology from, or our, the ideas of our theology from sometimes songs, we might miss something, right? So I'm going to use this quote here from a gentleman by the name of Kenneth Bailey. This is a great book that you see on the slide, although he doesn't address Zacchaeus in here, but I will, I want to use this quote by him. So Ken Bailey, he passed away a few years ago. He was a, um, Presbyterian minister, and then served almost his entire career in the East, between Lebanon, Cyprus, Egypt, Jordan, Israel, all over the East. And what he began to do was communicate back to those of us here in the West to say, I think we need to think about Jesus more from an Eastern perspective, and we'll see things in the Bible that you never saw before. And he's actually, he even got some of the Bible publishers to rewrite their sentences, like saying, look, I know, you, I know you can translate the Greek, but you're missing the entire meaning here. So he's even gone, gone that far. And so anyways, he, uh, he says all the time, we have to rescue truth from familiarity. Meaning we see these stories so often, but we don't read them deeply. The moment you start reading the parable of the Good Samaritan, you already know the ending because it's so familiar. Till you stop and you read it very slowly and you dig into it and you think, oh, wait a minute, I think I missed something. So that's what, that's what happens with Zacchaeus. And we're going we're gonna to unpack this. There's a lot in there, and we're not even going to cover all the different ways that we can look at it, but we'll cover a lot. And just so you know, I, you know, I'm aware I love finding things in the Bible that wake me up, that say, think about it this way, look over here, take a different angle. And I love finding those things. I think it's just an amazing to find that. But I also have to realize 
not everybody does love finding those things. And so, I, you know, today we're going to ask some tough questions about the way we read Zacchaeus, and I don't intend in any way to offend anybody. I love finding these things. If it, if you, if it does in some way challenge you to the point where you're not happy about it, I, I'm, I, no way do I intend for that to happen. I, I want you to, and I don't think, I don't think it will, but I just want to say that out loud that I do recognize that sometimes, you know, I love being challenged. Not everybody does, but I think this will challenge you to think about the way we read the story and we see Zacchaeus. And you know, what happens is, and you, I'm sure you've, you're aware of this, sermons are notoriously bad places for doing deep teaching, right? You have a crowd that varies in, in the way that you, or the, their amount of study. There's not a lot of back and forth with questions. So sermons are normally where we hear the stories, but they're not always great places for teaching. And teaching is supposed to go in, pull this stuff apart, look at it, ask tough questions, look at it from both sides. And uh, so that's what we're going to do today. There's a couple times I'll give my opinion. Other times I'm going to tell you what scholars have written, and I'll try to make sure that I don't confuse the two. All right, so let's go rescue some truth. So if we go to the text, first let's start. We're going to read through the Zacchaeus story one time, and then it's fairly short, and then we'll go uh, break it apart. Look at all the different areas that we need to look at. So Luke 19, 1 to 10, starting in verse 1, he, being Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass by. Verse 5, And when Jesus came to the place, he looked to him and said, Zacchaeus, hurry, down, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. Now, who's they? That's a good question, because Luke doesn't tell us, but there's clues. So, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of, of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Last two verses. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, if you listen closely, did you hear the bombshell that just went off in Jericho? Right? If CNN was reporting this, they would say, a bombshell was just dropped by Jesus in Jericho. That last sentence, verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, he's, he's alluding to a chapter in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 34. And when this is one of the, this is what I want you to read. We'll talk more about it 
this morning, but that's Ezekiel 34. And I want you to read Ezekiel 34 a couple times this week. It is 100% against the priests. And he just quoted it. And the moment he pulls that, he pulls Ezekiel 34 into it, everybody says, look out, because God's judgment is coming. Okay, so that's, that's the text right there, ending in Ezekiel 34. Okay. So if we, I want to do something, I want to back up, just back up mentally for a second. And I just want you to think about the Gospel of Luke. So this is where we are, actually, point one on your handout. So we, f- we only find the Zacchaeus story in the Gospel of Luke. So then we have to ask, why did Luke include it? Besides, it happened. Luke has editorial control over what stories he puts in, in what order. So Luke, God gave Luke some editorial control over this, but he, he, he adds in this story about Zacchaeus. And there's some prominent themes throughout the book of Luke, and you'll find this in almost every commentary uh, on Luke, is it's very much a concern for those who have been marginalized. Those on the margins of society, the poor, the widows, the aliens, the tax collectors. So the care for those who have been more uh, marginalized. And second, it's a warning to those who are in power. Now, who's in power? Well, in Jesus' day, it's not just Rome, it's the religious leaders, right? And the religious leaders are ending up, just like we saw last week with the Pharisee and the tax collector, through their attitudes, marginalize groups of Jews. Because these are Jewish folks that are going to be doing the things on behalf of the Jewish power structure. So two big themes in Luke, and we're going to see these, well, we have seen them, right? We, we read the, um, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and that was pointing right towards the priests because they're in power. Why aren't you taking care of the poor? Um, you have the Pharisee and the tax collector, again, someone in power looking down on somebody else. So this is, these are prominent themes. So what I'm going to suggest to you is that when we read Zacchaeus, see, we, our focus in the West is, because we're, we're uh, Protestants and evangelicals, is the salvation part. We love to see the salvation, someone coming to Jesus and, and being saved. But I'm going to suggest that the main theme of this story is a warning to the priests. Now, this, we've seen this throughout the past couple of weeks, right? How Jesus is very critical of the, of the power structures there at, in, his, in his day. So here's why. This is how you would come to that conclusion. Even though Luke never specifically mentions a priest. So the first one is just, if you look at verse 1, verse 1 says, they entered Jericho. Now, here we are, modern Westerners, that doesn't mean anything to me. But Jericho, for about 300 years, and up into including Jesus' day, is a priestly city. I put on the bottom of your sheet an article by a scholar, uh, jo- Joshua Schwartz, and he outlines, he, he says, it. look, you could essentially call it priestly Jericho. At one point, when the priests and the kings uh, were in power, this is the hundred years prior to, to Jesus showing up, 
Jericho was like an extension of Jerusalem. So it's dominated by priests. It's full of the priests that live there. Their summer, uh, their summer mansions are down in Jericho because Jericho is like Palm Springs. So it's a priestly city. Now, we wouldn't know that, but you, once we know something about Jericho, you say, aha. So when they are in the crowd and they are grumbling against Zacchaeus, who's the they? Ah, we're getting at the priests now. Now we're moving in that direction. So Jericho is a priestly city. Second, verse 10, Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34, let me just give you the, the, hi, the, uh, the highlights of Ezekiel 34. God shows up in Ezekiel 34 and he says, You shepherds of Israel, you who lead my flock, you trample the grass so the, the, the sheep can't eat, you muddy the water so that the lambs can't drink, you put the lambs out on the side of a hillside to, for the slaughter. How dare you? And God is angry. And he says, and I will destroy the leaders of my flock. And then right in the middle of that, it says, and I myself will come and I will save and I will seek and I will heal and I will bind up. So when Jesus says the son of man has come to seek and save the lost, what's he saying? He's fulfilling the Ezekiel prophecy where God is showing up, and you priests who are not taking care of my people, how dare you? And you're the one who's going to be out. And that's a, man, that is a strong sentiment in Ezekiel 34. So you've got Jericho, a priestly city, and then you quote, and so it's like a little sandwich, right? Verse 1 mentions Jericho, verse 10, Ezekiel 34, and now you can sandwich in, aha. He's not happy. And so what did the priests do? Well, the same thing that we've seen over the past few weeks. You marginalize certain people groups. Hey, I want to get closer to God. I want to be able to go to the temple. I want to be able to participate in religious life. And they say, no. And now you've got this, right? Now you've got a battle. Because when Jesus shows up, he's not going to put up with that. And part of the way we know that is verse 9. So Jesus says, For this man is to a son of Abraham. Now, what does that mean to be a son of Abraham? You're Jewish. So you priests have got a class of Jews that you're pushing out to the margins. And Jesus is going to show up and say, No, no, no. Your job is to go find a way for them to connect to God. That's why you're a priest. Put God on display. Be the father that runs after the son that doesn't deserve it. And it's a, man, that's a powerful message. So, now let me, okay, this, this is what we're going to unpack today. Because all of that, none of that is necessarily written in the text. It's all stuff that we would have to divine from what we know about the context of the story. Okay, so let me give you a, a this is, a, put this little diagram on your sheet. So in Jesus' day, we've talked about this repeatedly over the past few weeks, the priests are in power. They had been in power for years. They were, uh, you have Ananias, his, his son-in-law, um, why am I, I'm blanking, Caiaphas, thank you. When you're in, in power for 25 years straight, you're, 
you're controlling a lot of things. So the priests are in power. They also have wealth, and they got a lot of that wealth comes from Jericho. It's a, it's a fertile valley. So they have, they have power, they have wealth, and they also have the backing of Rome. Rome put a governor there, and the governor is allowing the priest to be in power as long as everything goes correctly, right? This is the story of Jesus, because the priests say, look, it's better for one person to die than the whole place to fall apart, so let's just let one Jew die. Well, the one Jew you let die was Jesus, and God wasn't too happy about that. He resurrected him from the dead. So the priests are in power. Well, how are you going to manage things like taxes? Well, you need, your, you need a group of people who are going to collect taxes for you. And so you have Jews collecting taxes, managed by the priests, by the way. So the priests use their own agents, in a sense. The tax collectors are Jews. So the priests rely on these people down here, tax collectors. The tax collectors essentially keep the priests in power, and yet the priests hold them in contempt. Now, you can't imagine a nation, right? A place where, the, where all the people in power have contempt for all the people below them. That would never happen, right? So, you have the priestly power, and there's Jews. These are Jewish people. That's why son of Abraham lands a huge punch. They're saying, look, Zacchaeus is a Jew, and you've pushed him out of the community. And how dare you do that? So, it's a real weird, I mean, it's a... Well, it's not a real weird power structure. This is the power structure of the world. There's people in power. They have contempt for all the people who do all the dirty work. And that's just how things are. So now, were the, were the tax collectors cheats and everything? Well, okay, there, there's plenty of room for cheating and all of that. But I think there's a bigger purpose here. Okay, so that's kind of the, that's the power structure that they're living in. So I think if I had to equate it to today, right, you know, you have politicians in power who steal from their own people. And if Jesus showed up, I think he'd be going to them and saying, what do you, what do you think about, you know, how dare you do that to your own people? All right, so that's kind of introduction. So there's a whole bunch of things we have to look at to get a clearer picture of what's going on with Zacchaeus. So the first one is Jericho, of course. We'll talk more about Jericho in a minute. But if we know that Jericho and priests are connected, then we can understand who's in the crowd. And if you remember the whole storyline of Jesus, he's about to go to Jerusalem, and what he's going to do is walk into that temple and say, hey, this temple is about to be overthrown, and the temple being overthrown is, is a judgment of the priesthood. Okay, so we have Jericho, we have priests. The one thing we're going to look at today, and I put this I used the word toll collector. Now, our, all of our Bibles say tax collectors, unless you use the Young's literal translation, which has a little bit different. This is what scholars, as over the past hundred years, as they've looked at the, the idea of taxes in Jerusalem or taxes in the first century Israel, that the people who were hated were the toll collectors, and Zacchaeus is a toll collector. Matthew is a toll collector. He sits on the road. You walk by with fish. I count your fish. I take so many, sell them at the market, turn the cash over to Rome or, or not Rome, but Antipas, whatever. Now, does that really matter? Well, it does a little bit because we want to get it as correct as possible. And the toll collectors, we'll talk about today why that's 
there's all there's that chance that you could be corrupt and why the Jews would say you can never be forgiven if you're a toll collector. Okay, so toll collectors. We need to talk, we'll do this next week, restitution, right? So uh, Zacchaeus says, look, if I've, if I've defrauded anybody, I'll pay him back fourfold. Now, where does he get that? That's not random, right? That's coming from the Old Testament. So we'll talk about how do you make restitution for a wrong? And then there's a whole bunch of questions about Zacchaeus. I mean, there's more questions that we don't know about Zacchaeus. Why did he have to climb a tree? Now we'd say, well, because he's short. Okay, but why didn't he go into the crowd? Why not go through the crowd? Who's in the crowd? Priests. And he's a tax collector. Why not just say, excuse me, excuse me, and push your way like at a parade to the, to the curb? Right? Maybe they won't let him through the crowd. Maybe he doesn't want to get into a crowd of priests. So why does he run to a tree, right? Why does Luke tell us he's rich? How does Jesus know who Zacchaeus is? Sometimes I assumed, well, I guess he has God powers and he just knows his name. Well, maybe, maybe there's more to that story too. We have to talk about, did he actually, was Zacchaeus actually cheating people? That's the assumption we make. So there's a scholarly debate we'll get into a little bit later. I would even ask the question, and I'll do this next week, so I'll leave it as a, a little bit of anticipation. What's the name Zacchaeus mean? What's his name mean? So that all goes into the story. Okay, and then finally, uh, Ezekiel 34, as I've mentioned ad nauseum, it's a, he, God, God's railing against the priests. Jesus quotes it and says, I'm the one, I'm the shepherd from Ezekiel 34 who's coming to seek and save the lost. And that's why the bombshell went off. That's why CNN was reporting it in, from Jericho. Okay, so all of that, you can see, there's a lot of stuff going on. So we're going to, we'll do that this week, and then we'll do the first three this week, and then the next three, or next week. All right, so let's take a step backwards again, sorry. The Gospel of Luke. You want to follow the themes, right? Let's say that we were first century people, and the only gospel we had was Luke's letter. So we would read it over and over and over and over and over. The stories would be told. We'd have it memorized. And you'd want to look for what are the themes? What are the, you know, just like the themes of reaching, or reaching to the poor, reaching to those who are marginalized. What are the themes? And I want to show you one theme that intersects with this story. And it has to do with Abraham. How do these things relate to Abraham? Now, I'm not going to. I'm not going to read each of these verses. You can go do that during the week. Um, but I'm just going to paraphrase what's going on in each of these verses. So you start out with John the Baptist. So that's at the beginning of Luke's gospel. He starts out with John the Baptist. John the Baptist is winning friends and influencing people by calling them a brood of vipers. You know, you brood of vipers who warned you to come out. When he's baptizing at the Jordan River, oh, by the way, six miles from Jericho. So John's baptizing, and he makes, he has this sentence that says, Don't think you can claim Abraham as your father. Now, what does he mean by that? Don't think just because you're Jewish, God doesn't judge you. 
because you think I can go to the temple as a priest and say, look, I'm a priest and you, you can get away with it. No, you can't. So don't claim Abraham as your father. That sets down um, in, in motion this theme of Abraham. So there's a story. We haven't looked at this story yet. It's in chapter 13, and you can look at it this week, about a woman who has a crippling spirit. Jesus heals her on the Sabbath day. The religious leaders get all bent out of shape. And Jesus says, for she is a daughter of Abraham. Now we have to think, well, how would they be treating her if in the first century, if somebody had a, a, a deformity or a, or a crippling part, people thought, you sinned, you must have sinned, God is angry at you. Okay, so she's, she's on the margin. Then, just a couple weeks ago, we did Lazarus, right? Here's Lazarus. He's a Gentile. He's, he's suffering in the world. The rich man represents the priesthood. And where does the, where does the Gentile end up? In Abraham's bosom. That's a twist. How did the Gentile get into Abraham's bosom? Well, go back to John's thing. Don't, don't think you can just claim Abraham as your father. Then we get to this, uh, our Zacchaeus story. So 19 verse 9, Jesus says, Zacchaeus is also a son of Abraham. So you can see that there's this, it's a theme. If we were, like I said, if we we're only listening to Luke, you'd start picking up on, oh, wait a minute, I've heard that before. Like when you're watching a movie or you're reading a novel and they, they kind of lay the, the breadcrumbs along the way that show you something. So each one of these people is, in a sense, on the margins. Why didn't the religious leaders help the woman with the crippling spirit? Right? So she's marginalized. Lazarus was certainly marginalized as a Gentile, but he ends up in Abraham's bosom. And then, of course, Zacchaeus, he's a tax collector. He's marginalized. And yet Jesus shows up and says, no, 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 he's a son of Abraham too. So, very prominent theme. It fits right into the story here with Zacchaeus and Jesus' declaration that He's, he's included in the group, and maybe, maybe, as a tax collector who's been scorned and spit on and hated by the community that's supposed to help you get closer to God, right? What if you're, a tax, what if you're born the son of a tax collector? What's your lot in life? And even if you love God, people treat you like you're scum. And the moment we marginalize people, Look out. Okay, so I think this is part of the main theme to the story. Now, I want to, what I would like to do is go a little bit closer to at least a couple of the things today. I want to talk a little bit about Jericho, and I've already given you the punchline essentially, but I want to at least show you a little bit more about Jericho so we can understand some of the background of that city and the priests. So I know many of you have been to Jericho, you, uh, whether you went to the New Testament part or the ancient city, the very, very old city. So if we go to a map, just so we can locate mentally where we're at in the world, you have Egypt down here to the south of the Mediterranean, Turkey, modern-day Turkey, obviously, to the north, and then right here, 
is where Israel sits in that eastern uh, side of the Roman Empire, really kind of in the backwoods, but right along the main road when you're in the, the, for the ancient Near East. Now, if we move closer, we see that there's the Dead Sea. So you have the Dead Sea to the south. You have the Sea of Galilee to the north. Remind me one day, I'll give, tell you a great, it's a really cool analogy with the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. No time today, but just someone remind me about that. And then right in the middle here is our area of Jericho. And by the way, as next slide, I'll move in closer. Jerusalem is right in that white circle as well. So if you go close enough, here's Jerusalem. Now, here's my analogy. Jerusalem sits at about 2,200 feet above sea level. And then if you head 13 miles to the east and downhill, you go down this valley called Wadi Kelt, you're down at the city of Abraham. You're at the city of Jericho. For for those of you on the West Coast, picture Julian is Jerusalem. It snows in the winter. It's cold in the winter. It's up at a higher elevation. And you have a really sharp drop-off into the desert. So if Jerusalem is Julian, then Jericho is like Borrego Springs. Or if Jerusalem is Hollywood in the wintertime, all the rich people go out to Palm Springs because that's when it's cold and raining in Hollywood, it's sunny and 80 degrees in Palm Springs. So the, the priests and the wealthy people in Jerusalem had winter palaces down in Jericho. Go down to Jericho, nice and warm. We like that warm weather. No one wants to shovel the snow. So it's very close. Now, the other thing is, and this is in the, I mentioned Joshua Schwartz talks about this, that at one point, Jericho and Jerusalem could be uniquely tied through the priesthood. There was a constant train of priests going up and down from Jericho because Jericho supplied the priesthood. Half of the priests lived in Jericho, while the other half would be up in Jerusalem. So when Jesus tells the story, a man walked down to Jericho, and then you have a priest and a Levite, well, that makes sense. Everybody knows the priests and Levites are constantly going back and forth to Jericho because it's like an extension. Now, if you notice on that picture, Jericho is a blob of green in the middle of a desert. So if we go closer to that, you think, how did that thing get green, right? Well, there's springs that pop out. All that snow and rain that happens up in Jerusalem sinks down into the, through the mountains, and then there's a, there's a layer of limestone, and it punches out right at, at Jerusalem. At least one of the springs does. So right here is the Jordan River. Six miles away is uh, where John the Baptist is baptizing. And then these mountains over here, that's the uh, wilderness of Judea. And as the water flows underneath those mountains, it comes right out at a spring in Jericho. So Jericho is actually a fairly fertile place. Even today, they grow tons and tons of produce, just like we do in the Central Valley out there by the Salton Sea. Okay, so Jericho, as I mentioned, it's a priestly city. You could call it priestly Jericho. Second. It's a very fertile valley. Now, if you're the priests, if you own the land, and it's a fertile valley that ships food all over the place, what does that end up bringing you? Is wealth. So you end up getting wealth out of that city. 
that technically is in the tribe of Benjamin, so it wasn't supposed to go to the Levites, but it's a very fertile valley. And fun fact to know and tell, in the century prior to Jesus, Mark Antony, he was the Roman, uh, he, he held power over the eastern side of the empire, and then Caesar Augustus defeated Mark Antony. Mark Antony was his girlfriend named Cleopatra. Mark Antony gave Jericho to Cleopatra. Now, why would he give Jericho to Cleopatra? Because in Jericho, there is balsam that grows. They call it the balm of Gilead. So balsam, uh, fragrant resin, I guess like myrrh or frankincense. And apparently what they say, it only grew at Jericho. And this was prized around the world. So think about if Jericho has something that the whole world will pay a lot of money for. What ends up happening? How's the flow of money going into Jericho? Well, that's, that becomes a lot of money if you're selling your balsam to all, all the wealthy people around the world. So you can get tremendous wealth. And so if you read commentaries on Zacchaeus, many of them will mention it's, it's, it's normal. It, it would be normal that if you're going to have a tax collector that's wealthy, it would happen at, at Jericho because he's on the trade route. First of all, there's tons of trade coming through Jericho, but Jericho itself produces a lot of wealth. So it's not surprising that the guy has wealth. Now, how did he get the wealth? Well, that's a different question, but it's not surprising that you might have extra wealth, especially if it's... So anyways, that's Jericho. Now, this next part, I've been wrestling with how I want to present it. There's no 100% absolutely clear picture, but we do know a lot about the progression of tax collection and tax collectors. And whenever anybody talks about this, it always gets conflated. And so I just want to show you a couple things to help, help your mind say, aha, that's a conflation. We're taking something from another time or another location, and we're implanting it into our biblical picture. So the first thing about, and again, I, I want to, we'll emphasize toll collectors in a minute, but tax collectors. There was a group of very wealthy Roman citizens, mostly Romans, like from Rome. They're called publicans. Now that's a Latin word. And unfortunately, the King James Version of the Bible translated Every time it says toll collector, they translated it publican. And so now when we think publican, what are we thinking about? Well, publicans were these very wealthy Romans. They exploited the eastern provinces of the Roman Empire for taxes. That's, they, we know they did that. It became so bad, though, that by the time Julius Caesar gets into power, Julius Caesar outlaws or begins to break down the publican system. So that's 45 years before Jesus shows up. Caesar Augustus did the same thing, and publicans hadn't been in Israel for about 50 years when Jesus is born. So we have to be careful that we don't take the idea of 100% of publican and apply it to every tax collector we see in the text. So by the time Jesus gets in into his born and his ministry going, you have a completely different tax structure. 
So I, this is this is so I'm giving you like such a broad brush stroke. You have two main provinces of Israel: Judea to the south, that includes Jerusalem, and Galilee to the north. And in Jesus' ministry day, they're governed by two separate groups. Now the Roman Empire's over the whole thing, but in Judea you have a Roman governor, that's Pilate, and then you have the aristocracy of the Sadducees, the Sadducean aristocracy, that's the priests. Well, they're managing what's going on. So that's Judea. If you go to Galilee, it's, to it's different. It's Herod Antipas. So if you compare Zacchaeus as a tax collector to Matthew as a tax collector, they're actually working for two completely different entities. And we often will say every tax collector was collecting tax for Rome, but that's not true of Matthew. He was collecting taxes for Herod Antipas, which is probably no better. But again, we want to be as accurate as we can. So if we look at a map, and sorry, this is kind of a small map, but Judea is that purple circle to the south. That was Rome. That's Pilate. He's the governor. And then the priests are running Jerusalem and all the administrative stuff from Jerusalem that as the center of their religious worship. And then Herod Antipas, he's up here in Galilee, and then he has this long uh, north-south running territory that's just on the, on the eastern bank of the Jordan River called Perea. That's Herod Antipas. So when we look at these two, when we think of the two main tax collectors, Matthew and um, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is down here. Now he's, Ro Rome is governing that area, but really he's collecting taxes on behalf of the, uh, the aristocracy. And I'll give you next week, I'll show you an article about, that's all about the tax collectors in Israel in the first century. And multiple times the author is noting that whoever was in charge of collecting taxes, and oftentimes it was the priests, would have their own people doing it, or they'd have their own agents. So Zacchaeus would be an agent of the priests, in a sense. They farm it out to him, but that's who's really the administered. And we don't necessarily, sometimes we conflate it. We say, ah, oh, they work for Rome. Not necessarily. So Judea is Zacchaeus, and Galilee is Matthew. That's, that's a very fast way to, to look at it. But then we get to the idea of, well, what are they doing specifically? Well, they're both toll collectors. And toll collectors collect taxes on the movement of goods. Goods and services coming through or goods and services being produced in an area. And they're always located at commercial centers. So Zacchaeus is at Jericho. That's a commercial center. It funnels in, if you're coming from the east, you, you need to find a road to climb over the mountains. And there's a road at Jericho, so you could funnel in to Jericho. It also is producing food, of course. Capernaum, the road from Damascus comes down, it goes right through Capernaum. And Capernaum is the first city on the road in Herod Antipas's um, region. So you stick a guy out there named Matthew, say everybody that comes by here with their goods, you need to collect a certain portion of money from their goods. So some scholars think that even the reason Peter moved from Bethsaida, which is in, a, in, a, uh, in Philip's, uh, uh, Herod Philip's kingdom, he moved across the river from, over from Bethsaida to Capernaum 
is to avoid the tax over in, in Phillips area, right? Then you only have to pay one tax. You pay Herod's tax. And everybody's always trying to avoid taxes, so. Okay, it's always movement of goods. Now, here's the, this is the crux. This is the crux. If you're a tax collector, oftentimes those taxes are being paid in the goods that are being shipped, right? Fish, fruit, cabbages, dates, whatever it is. So how are you, you have to do the calculations to say, X number of sardines that you just caught are now going towards the tax collection, right? And how, if you have a crafty tax collector, he's going to pick out the best fish. He's going to pick out the best looking dates or the, whatever it is. Or he's going to do the calculations funky so that you end up collecting more. And so the, the reason the rabbis think that the tax collectors are beyond forgiveness is because it's not that they cheat necessarily. It's that it's so easy to cheat. They're in a job that's so easy to cheat people. And in order to be completely good with God, if you cheat somebody, you have to restore them. Well, what if a guy is traveling from Babylon down to Egypt and you cheat him out of money? How do you restore that guy? You can't. And so the rabbis say, you're beyond forgiveness because you can't follow the rules to get back into order. You can't restore what you cheated from the guy. So it's seen as, the, the reason they're disdained is they, it's seen as a type of vocation that's so easy to cheat, we assume you do. So uh, I'm sure you could think of, even today, what are the things that you have to go engage in that make you nervous because you think the guy's going to cheat you? It's the things that maybe you do the least, right? So, for instance, I, there was that, many of you remember this, Seinfeld had an episode where Jerry, Jerry had to go buy a car, and the one thing he was worried about was they were going to convince him that he needed the, under, the, the, the treatment for the underside of the car, right? So when you're at a car dealer and they say, oh, you better get that uh, undercarriage treatment, you don't know what the guy, if he's selling you a bill of goods or what. And so we, we tend to think of, like we, use the, like we use used car salesmen as a pejorative to talk about somebody who's always trying to con you out of more money. That would be like a tax collector. Somebody you assume is trying to get more money out of you. If you go to insurance salesmen, what do you think that guy's going to try to do? Well, he gets paid by selling you insurance, and the higher the premium, the more he gets paid. So you are obviously someone who needs a high premium insurance policy because that's what I do for a living, you know, something like that. So anyways, I just want to bring more context to this idea. Why would they be considered unforgivable? Well, because if you cheat somebody who's on the road, you can never pay them back, and the job is very easy to cheat people. Okay, now just one last note about tax collectors. There is a tax in uh, the Roman, in, down in Judea, it's a head tax, like that every person was supposed to pay a tax, and they used different agents to collect those taxes. So Zacchaeus isn't collecting direct taxes from you. He's doing the toll collecting. Okay, um, now, we're almost done. Let me go. There's some big questions that we're going to ask next week about Zacchaeus. And here's one of the main ones, and let me just tell you, this is a scholarly debate. You might not know it exists, but it's out there, and 
The question is, did Zacchaeus cheat people? Now, all of us assume that he did because he's a tax collector and he's rich. And, but the story is ambiguous, and let me show you why. And here, this is this verse right here, Luke 19.8. This verse creates hate and discontent amongst scholars because it's ambiguous. And so everyone's trying to figure out exactly what Luke meant, intended to tell us. But I think its genius is in the ambigu- ambiguity. Luke wants you to think about what you're do, what how you interpret it. So the verse says this, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And now listen to this next sentence. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now what's the most important word in that little sentence? Two letters. If. Why would he say if? Does that mean, well, I may have, I can't think of anybody? Does it mean, hey, if by chance I do, I'll go ahead and pay it back? I mean, the if, and if, when you, if, you, if you look at the Greek underneath it, it says this does not mean since. Like, so if, if Zacchaeus was repenting, he would say, since I've defrauded people, I'll figure out a way to pay them back. But that's not what he says if I've defrauded anybody. Again, that throws us into a turmoil because that's not, we, we never read the text that way. But there's two more verbs, and we'll do this more next week. There's two verbs in the sentence, give and restore. And both verbs, not to get too much into, into the grammar, are in the present tense. So some of your Bibles say, I will give to the poor. That's not what Luke said. I give to the poor. Now, is that a present tense? And so some some scholars say, that's talking about something he does regularly. I regularly give to the poor. The other thing, the word restore. It's not, I will restore it. It's, I restore. So he might be saying, hey, Jesus, if I find out I've defrauded anybody, I restore it fourfold. So. It's, this, it's a debate that's going on. Now, you might not know that was a debate, but it, it, it is, and it's because the sentence is ambiguous, and honestly, I read both sides of the debate, and I think, well, there's a good point on that side, and there's a good point on that side, and I'm not sure which way to go with this. So I think that's the genius in it. Luke wants us to think about this. We'll look at this sentence again next week, but that word, if, and then the two verb tenses throw into question the way that we think about this story. All right, so did he cheat? Why does he choose the restitution that he does? I'll pay fourfold. So there's something in the Old Testament. And then the last thing, and we'll look at this next week, is there a way to connect Zacchaeus's response to John the Baptist? Because when John was baptizing, tax collectors showed up. He's six miles away from, Jer- from Jericho. And what John tells them is exactly what Zacchaeus says, I'm not doing. So you have to read Luke as a story and say, Did John, is John the Baptist influencing something about Zacchaeus, what John was saying? Okay, we'll talk more about that next week. That's more introduction. All right, so back to this, coming up to the final, well, we'll do a review, but you can see there's a lot going on in the story. 
There's a lot more than we tend to know, understand. And so just like uh, uh, Kenneth Bailey says, we need to go into the story and pull out some things from the text that help us read it differently, or at least take a, a, a different angle on it. So just as a quick review, we needed to know about Jericho. That's where the priests live. The priests are wealthy. The priests are responsible for collecting taxes to the Rome, but I need a class of people, Jews, to collect those taxes. I don't know that anybody went to school to become a tax collector. I'm not sure how the, they, that got started. It's probably all the people who are on the outs. Toll collectors, not tax collectors. That's just a minor detail, but it does help us get a clearer picture. Why the restitution? We'll look at that next week. All these questions about Zacchaeus. Did he cheat? Why did he have to climb a tree? Did Jesus already know who he was? There's tons of questions. And then the last one is, if you get a chance, read Ezekiel 34, because that helps us understand how Jesus is directing this right at the priests by, by using that quote, which tells you what Jesus is doing. It also tells you about how he views Zacchaeus. Okay, so we'll do part two next week. Thanks for joining us under the fig tree for today's lesson. If you like this video, be sure to hit the like button below. And make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit that bell to be notified every time I upload a new lesson. You can also check out more teachings here at our YouTube channel or at figtreeteaching.com and enjoy learning about the sweetness of God's words.